0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Joseph Sani, Vice President of the Africa Center at the United States Institute of Peace. In partnership with the United Nations Program, a Development Program, USIP is pleased to welcome you to this conversation about how the war in Ukraine is affecting Africa and potential responses. We are glad to welcome you to USIP, a national nonpartisan independent institute founded by Congress Almost 40 years ago, to help prevent, mitigate, and resolve conflict abroad. In October 2020, USIP Africa Center was established to deepen, elevate, and expand our commitment to stemming violent conflict in Africa. We work directly with African political and civic leaders. African government and regional institutions, businesses, civil society, African citizens, including women and youth, to build the local capabilities to mitigate and resolve conflict peacefully to avoid further crises. Unfortunately, Africa has suffered from the impacts of climate change, COVID-19 pandemic, and now, Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. This invasion has dealt a significant blow to the rules-based multilateral system. It also threatens human security, peace, and democracy in Africa. Spiking food, fertilizer, and fuel prices are provoking social unrest. And increasing fragility and instability in many countries in Africa. Yet, the war and its disruption also represent a moment for Africa to pose and ask essential questions to help it become a more assertive geopolitical and economic player globally. After all, Africa possesses new catalyzers of growth. I'm thinking of the new African continental free trade area, for example, one of the largest in the world. It has a large entrepreneurial youth population and a growing middle class. Africa is home to abundant natural resources, including strategic minerals, and also arable capable of sustaining important agricultural value chains. And African populations are increasingly demanding democratic governance, which must not be overlooked, particularly in these times. The critical question before us today is how can African countries and their partners leverage their abundant resources and human capabilities to address the short-term impact of the Russia invasion in Ukraine and advance their long-term development and security needs. In other words, how can Africa make the best out of this very, very bad situation? We are pleased to be joined by two distinguished speakers who will help us think through some of these challenges and importantly, identify some key opportunities. We are honored to have with us today the United Nations Assistant Secretary General and Director of the UNDP Regional Bureau for Africa, Ms. Aruna Iziakonwa, and USIP Senior Advisor, Ambassador Johnny Carson. Thank you both for joining us today. We look forward to a productive conversation. I will now turn it over to Assistant Secretary General, Mrs. Awuna Izakonwa, who uh, will give us some remarks. And the remarks will be followed by a moderated discussion by USIP West Africa Director Oge Onuboku. Thank you.
2: Thank you, uh, my dear brother and vice president of the Africa Center here at USIP. Um, Let me also extend warm greetings to Ambassador Jenny Carson, who will be uh, joining in this conversation, and uh, by extension to all the leadership and staff of uh, uh, the Institute, Uh, especially I want to recognise the President, who is a former colleague and and friend, uh, Liz Grande. Sorry to miss her today. Um, But thank you so much for the warm welcome. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. Our shared goals to promote the sustainable development goals, to preserve human dignity, to prevent violent conflict, to leverage technology, and to leave no one behind are the building blocks for what the UNDP uh, administrator Mr. Achim Steiner described as a future smart development, a future smart UNDP. It is really a great pleasure to be in this magnificent building, which I'm visiting for the first time, uh, which is widely recognized as a monument of global peace. Uh, it is aptly located in the National Mall of the United States. The building's translucent fiberglass roof in the shape of a dove is quite compelling and it does signal to the world USIP's commitment to fostering a peace and sustaining it across the world. Sadly, today, far too many are facing insecurity, facing uncertainty, instability, and the consequences of violent conflict and violent extremism. This is particularly true in Africa, where 1.4 billion people living across 55 countries are struggling to contend with the complex and compounding crises that have really hit the world and the continent. In 2020 and 2021, due to the global COVID-19 pandemic, African countries saw decades of hard-won macroeconomic, socioeconomic, and governance gains reversed. For the first time in almost three decades, the continent's human development index dropped, signaling that the pandemic was reversing development in Africa. Millions of Africans lost their jobs and means of livelihood. Global trade disruptions did constrain growth, and many African countries suffered from a progressively shrinking fiscal space, and they were unable to finance much needed social protection initiatives. We will recall that before the pandemic, African countries were among the fastest growing in the world. I think at the time, six out of 10 African countries were among the fastest uh, growing, top 10 fastest growing countries. And we were also starting to see growth that was uh, somewhat job rich and that was trying to be more inclusive. Overall today, some 50 million Africans were pushed back into extreme poverty as a result of the events of the last couple of years. Vulnerable and marginalized segments of the population, particularly the women, and of course the the continent's youth, were hardest hit and had least uh, access to support, and this included also small-medium enterprises, and most of the businesses that were classified as informal, it is therefore no surprise that COVID-19 actually worsened financial and societal inequalities in Africa. African countries worked with their development partners to respond to these wide-ranging effects of the pandemic. National socio-economic response programs contained a combination of prudent macroeconomic Uh, policies and also strategic investments in income generation, in social protection, and in job creation. On the regional scale, we saw Africa taking steps to address vaccine inequity. Who can forget the scramble for vaccines last year? And what it meant for regions like Africa that were pushed behind the line. For example, we saw the African Vaccine Acquisition Trust, AVAT, an initiative of the African Union that will provide 400 million doses of J&J single shot COVID-19 vaccines through the African Medical Supplies platform over a period of 18 months. This has been made possible by the 2 billion US dollar facility that was provided by an African financial institution, the African Export-Import Bank, (Afreximbank), Bank. Avert will greatly increase the availability of life-saving vaccines across the continent, while also increasing jobs and facilitating technology transfers, in addition, Countries like Senegal, South Africa, and Rwanda are at at the forefront of vaccine production uh, locally on the continent. So while multilateralism appeared to be shrinking elsewhere in the world, it was expanding in Africa during this COVID period. By the end of 2021, Africa outperformed the anticipated 3.7% GDP growth and recorded an impressive 4.5% showing its resilience and its muscle to bounce back. The recovery was fragile, however, but the continent appeared to be back on track towards the attainment of the SDGs. The onset of the Russia-Ukraine crisis earlier this year set African countries even further back. Trade disruptions, the sharp increases in food and fuel prices and pervasive uncertainty have destabilised households once again. Communities and countries across the continent are once again in a very precarious situation. These impacts combined with the lingering effects of COVID-19 pandemic further retard development progress on the continent. The direct effects of the Ukraine war include inflation in the prices of food and fuel, disruptions in trade of goods and services, a further tightening of the fiscal space, constrained green transitions, and a reduced flow of development finance. While African countries' foreign trade with Russia Ukraine and the Belarus in most of the cases is not that significant. There are some exceptions in products such as wheat, fertilizers, and steel that could have a direct impact on African nations. In 21, for example, Kenya imported almost 30% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And the supply disruption would have a negative effect on bread production, which is the third most consumed food item in that country. Furthermore, the war has had a negative impact on Africa's critical imports. Since Russia and Ukraine control around 40% of the total global potash fertilizer shipments, African countries are experiencing Supply disruptions in this area. For example, 44% of Cameroon's fertilizer, um, Joseph, <laughs> in 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 um, in Cameroon, uh, came from Russia in 2020. 44%, and analysts fear that current disruptions in fertilizer supply, particularly in West Africa, where the planting season is just starting could have a dire effect on yields, uh, which uh, would also further compromise food security in the coming months. Iron ore and steel from Ukraine account for about 60% of Ghana's iron ore and steel imports. As a result of the war, the construction industry in that country is likely to face severe hurdles because of the supply disruptions in steel and iron ore, as well as the higher import costs that the countries are now facing. As mentioned earlier, the combined effect of COVID-19 pandemic and Russia-Ukraine war has reduced the government's revenues from trade and from taxation, while government spending to address all of these including social protection mechanisms, have at the same time risen. So countries are being asked to spend more with less coming in. In addition, fiscal and monetary responses of sub-Saharan African countries increased public indebtedness across Africa. According to the IMF's Regional Economic Outlook for Sub-Saharan Africa, this is the one in April 2022, 20 African countries are currently in high risk or debt uh, distress, compared to eight in 2015. Mozambique and Zimbabwe, for instance, are already in debt distress, while Malawi, Zambia, and Comoros are at high risk. Furthermore, downgraded credit ratings because of the pandemic, in increasing the cost, uh, uh, the cost of debt servicing. Ratings from credit ratings agencies increase the cost of borrowing for African countries. Some of these ratings we know are biased in some way. 56% of currently rated African countries were downgraded by ratings agencies in the early months of COVID, compared with 31% globally. UNDP research suggests that biased credit ratings could be costing six African countries $13 billion in additional interest rate payments. So Africa is borrowing at a much higher cost than the rest of the world. Perhaps the most pernicious effects of the Russia-Ukraine war in Africa is imported inflation. Across Africa, many countries are recording sharp increases in food and fuel prices. For example, overall inflation spiked by 34% in Tanzania between February and April this year. In uh, Namibia, transportation costs rose by 20% between March and April. And food prices increased by 26% between February and March in Cameroon. Food and fuel account for over half of household consumption, making imported inflation particularly devastating, with poorer households being affected disproportionately. Furthermore, our analysis indicates that domestic inflationary trends in most African countries are positively correlated uh, with global food and oil prices. In addition, development projects are being postponed and cancelled as some development partners balk at the higher domestic cost of projects, and other consider diverting funds to deal with growing humanitarian crises in Europe. But again, we see uh, some kind of a turning to uh, the political lens to view uh, development on the continent, which is a very worrying trend. The Russia-Ukraine war is also a clear and present danger to multilateralism, which was already on a limping leg. Um, This multilateralism we've seen in the past decades has been a bulwark of robust development efforts since the end of the Second World War. An unwelcome tendency towards unilateralism and a return to Cold War dynamics would be devastating for Africa and indeed for the world. A world that has invested already a lot in getting on track to shaping the kind of civilization that future generations deserve. We recall with great concern the challenges to governance and accountability that characterized the war the Cold War decades in Africa, a Cold War redux will certainly exacerbate the recent retreat of democratization in parts of the continent, where we have witnessed disruptive and unconstitutional political transitions. It will also be quite discouraging for the countries that are trying to do the right thing, and there are many of them, countries like Zambia, which had very successful free elections, uh, democratic elections that ushered in a new government, peaceful transition with many promises to the population. If they have to face the kind of severe hostility uh, that we are experiencing in the financial landscape, how will that government be able to stand up uh, democracy uh, and sustain it? and sustain peace as well among its population if it cannot meet the promises that uh, it, 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 um, it, it gave, and if democracy cannot deliver the dividends of development. This is why we must value multilateralism, peace, and security at all levels. Um, speaking at the Nelson Mandela Lecture in July 2020, we were in the middle of COVID at the time, I recall the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, calling for renewed multilateralism that will be based on a new global new deal that will create equal opportunities for all and respect the rights and freedoms of all. He noted that this will be based, and I quote, based on a fair globalization on the rights and dignity of every human being, on living in balance with nature, on taking account of the rights of future generations, and on success that's measured in human rather than economic terms, end of quote. We must, ladies and gentlemen, invest in robust and meaningful multilateralism if we're to make it in our generation. So these complex crises are a massive exogenous uh, uh, shock to the African continent. These uncommon times demand exceptional and extraordinary solutions. Business as usual will not suffice. UNDP's analysis based on results from international futures modeling calls for what we call a big push strategic investments in governance, in economic growth, in environmental sustainability, in equity, in social services, and in technology that could help African countries withstand the impacts of these exogenous (coughs) shocks, and put countries back on track to attain the SDGs. The Secretary General calls it enlightened self-interest. This is not asking for charity for Africa. It is asking the world to invest in a more secure future. To kickstart a historic big push in Africa, countries and their partners must focus on three collectively reinforcing priorities. First is that we must reframe development finance. We have to rethink the whole architecture of the global finance uh, uh, landscape. And this must start by enhancing domestic resource mobilization. Some have described Africa as a rich continent with poor people and weak institutions. We must prioritize actions that ensure that the continent retains a much greater share of the value of its strategic mineral agricultural, and human resources. This can be accomplished in three ways, by reducing the almost $90 billion illicit financial flows from the continent. There is more money leaving Africa than coming in, ladies and gentlemen. This has to be rebalanced. It can be done by improving Africa's tax effort and raising average tax to GDP ratios from the current 17.5% to 24%. It can be done by eliminating unnecessary tax waivers, especially for big business. In addition, external priorities like sustaining levels of development assistance, rechanneling additional SDRs. this um, special drawing rights to finance strategic investments, particularly say, for instance, in the climate change area. And of course, the whole development of innovative market-based and blended options that must be prioritized. It is shocking that when SDRs were allocated, out of $650 billion of SDRs, Africa got only $34 billion. Most of it went to countries that didn't need it. The second aspect of the proposed Big Bush is the need to consistently invest in resilience. We have to shock-proof development and democracy. There are too many shocks. It has become the new normal. If the SDGs have taught us anything, it is that development is not linear. Various shocks can and do reverse development gains and progress without resilience is not sustainable. So, diverse shocks like the impact of planetary pressures, we've written about this in UNDP, the end of the commodity boom, Uh, COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine all seem to affect Africa similarly due to its endemic structural vulnerabilities and dependent position in the global economic system. There are two words that hit Africans and Africa in the face in the last two years. Exclusion and dependency. Any approach that we have today must tackle both. To build resilience to the future, to these future shocks. Africa needs initiatives that enable it to fully utilize its natural resource wealth to direct and finance economic development that is more self-sufficient. We need to take advantage of planet-friendly financing mechanisms like blue carbon markets and green financing. And we have to focus on climate risk-sensitive investment, de-risking and impact investment. Above all, Africa and its development partners need to invest in food and fuel security, in greater productive capacity, e.g. for fertilizer, and in higher value-added manufacturing and exports. The third is structural transformation and regional integration that must be prioritized. Africa needs to harness digital technologies and promote free and fair competition globally. Intensify uh, support to regional integration and economic diversification, and mobilize the resources to fill persistent critical gaps we have in technology, in skills and infrastructure, in energy that constrain currently Africa's development. The African Union's Africa Continental Free Trade Area AFCFTA arrangement Provides an ideal framework for the continent to rationalize and harmonize tariffs, eliminate persistent non-tariff barriers and trade, and prioritize the uninhibited flow of trade and people among the African countries. The AFCFTA could lift some 30 million Africans out of extreme poverty. It could increase income by $450 billion and more than double the size of the single African market to $6.7 trillion by the next decade. As I close, I want to leave you with two Swahili words. Harambe, two African words, Harambe and Ubuntu. Harambe means we are all together. And Ubuntu means I am, because you are. The African continent is facing uncommon and unprecedented uh, exogenous shocks in the wake of COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine. It cannot deal with this alone. But these things also tell us, these events also tell us that our world has become so much more interconnected. Ensuring a speedy, inclusive, and sustainable recovery across Africa needs all of us to come together to make it happen. This is certainly not the time to defund Africa's development, which we are unfortunately seeing, or to abandon multilateralism as the key instrument for equalizing our world, or to undermine investor confidence. It's not the time to leave the continent behind. Africa still needs development assistance and will continue to do so in the coming years. However, We must look beyond aid and work towards eliminating the dependence of the aid framework. Africa needs significant investment flows, but this will not be realised unless we all work together to de-risk Africa's investment ecosystem and proactively explore the use of innovative financing mechanisms. Uh, to deal with the challenges. Africa needs to improve domestic resource mobilization, and it needs to tackle illicit financial flows. Ladies and gentlemen, since being in Washington, there's been a lot of talk about fragility. Most of my meetings in reference to Africa have been about fragility and how to deal with it. I want to challenge that notion that when we think Africa, There is nothing fragile about the people of Africa or about the continent itself. This is a place peopled with resilient, hard-working individuals. What is fragile are the systems that surround them, globally, regionally, and nationally. What is fragile is our multilateralism. What is fragile is the governance, architecture that the world that Africa is having to confront today and Africans are having to deal with. What is fragile is our compact to tackle climate change by fulfilling a climate promise which is unfulfilled. So as we think about a future smart Africa, let us remember that we are talking about a people that are resilient, that are hardworking, that are determined, that are youthful, and that want to make a meaningful contribution to our collective civilization. I thank you.
0: Thank you so much for those remarks and good afternoon everyone who's joined us here today for this conversation, as well greetings to all our virtual, to the members of our virtual audience who are joining us online on the continent and around the world. Thank you all for for joining this conversation. My name is Oge Onobogo and I am the Director for the West Africa Program in the Africa Centre here at USIP. As Joseph Sani has already mentioned, here at the Africa Centre, we partner with those who are working to prevent, mitigate and resolve violent conflict by using analysis, training and in-country programming to achieve sustainable and inclusive peace, so therefore we are delighted to partner with UNDP today to host this very timely conversation on breaking away from economic dependency in Africa. Ms. Huna, thank you so much for those wonderful remarks. And let me also introduce our co-panelists who has already been introduced but really needs no introduction to those who follow U.S. Africa policy discussions. Um, so Ambassador Johnny Carson is a senior advisor here at USIP with the Africa Center. In 2009 he was the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Africa and his distinguished 37-year foreign service career includes ambassadorships to to Kenya, Zimbabwe, and Uganda. So we look forward to a very engaging conversation today. And to our audience following us online, I encourage you to please follow the conversation via Twitter using the hashtag Africa's Economic Future. So if we go into the conversation, as has already been said, the war in Ukraine The socioeconomic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, the impacts of climate change, and a global economic downturn all present challenges that could derail Africa's development progress. Given the constrained physical space, as you mentioned in your your remarks, rising debt, rising inflation, how can African policymakers really position their economies on a path of sustainable discovery? a sustainable recovery. In addition, how can international develop how can the international development community, including multilateral organizations like the UN, IMF, World Bank and the rest of them, collaborate with the continent and policymakers on the continent to help Africans exit this turbulent period with a newfound capacity of developing their own economic future? You've already touched on some of these points in your remarks, but I'll call on you again to elaborate even further on these. Mm. Thank
2: you, Okay, I think um, perhaps there are three things I think will be important to, to look at on this in terms of how Africa positions. Africa needs to be more assertive in uh, taking its, its, its position in the, in the world um, geopolitically. You know, there needs to be uh, more assertiveness because I think Africa has been treated always as a problem child, despite the fact that this is a continent that breathes promise and opportunity. Um, so first of all, to really uh, not apologise for being Africa, but you know, to stand boldly uh, to present uh, where it makes a contribution to the world, where it is important, an important part of the global fabric. So, if you position that way, then it's important for those institutions, those uh, financial and Global institutions to understand that investment is in Africa, in Africa's well being and progress is investment in the global well being and progress. What's good for Africa is good for the world. Right now, Africa is being defunded in terms of its development. Um, financial flows are drastically being reduced. African countries have been asked to do the impossible, which is invest in social protection and stimulus for recovery. but with no uh, financial means uh, coming through. We're seeing a reduction in concessional uh, financing, concessional loan finances. money is becoming more and more more expensive for African countries. Um, So I think there needs to be a repositioning and rethinking of Africa's relationship with the world in terms of understanding that it's a relationship of um, a partnership of purpose, not a relationship of charity. You know, we, we can pick and choose uh, when we support Africa. The, the climate, the future of the planet, Africa has a lot to say on that and contribute to that because it holds the world's second lung, uh in the Congo Basin. Uh, but today, finance for climate adaptation is not there, um, the promised 100 billion a year is not coming forth. So how does the world expect Africa to play its part in protecting the planet if all of these uh, finances are not uh, flowing? So I think positioning to help the world understand the important place of Africa in the world is really uh, important.
0: Thank you so much for those comments. and. Ambassador Carson, I I want to turn to you, pulling on those two same questions, but in addition, as we pull on this thread of thinking about how we break away, breaking away from economic dependency in Africa, what are some specific U.S. citizen or U.S. government initiatives that could support long-term economic development in African countries, particularly at a time like this? Uh,
3: First of all, Ogi, thank you very much for allowing me to be on this panel with the Assistant Secretary General of the UN. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Ms. Zakuna. I think that the United States uh, has always looked at Africa uh, as a partner, but sometimes it has not taken that partnership as seriously uh, and as committedly uh, as it it should be. Uh, I think that uh, Africa is indeed uh, an important and integral uh, part of the global uh, community. Uh, And as Africa moves ahead, as Africa rises, so does the global community. What is good for uh, Africa is good uh, for the United States. Uh, It is good uh, for Western Europe. Uh, It is good uh, for Asia. Uh, africa's economic uh, progress contributes uh, to our global progress uh, to our global economic uh, movement ahead and so one should look at uh, the issues uh, very very uh, importantly uh, clearly uh, over the last uh, uh, the last uh, uh, decade uh, and particularly over the, the last few years uh, things uh, like uh, COVID, like climate change, like the conflict uh, in uh, U- Ukraine have challenged those uh, uh, partnerships, uh, but they need to be forged and, and, and strengthened through something that you talked about, and that is uh, multilateralism. Uh, I think that the US uh, government uh, has uh, a responsibility uh, to listen more Attentively and carefully to what Africa's best leaders are saying and wanting. And I start with one uh, that's very important uh, today, and that is uh, the African Free Trade uh, Agreement. Uh, this is probably the most important pan African uh, agreement uh, of the last decade. It has the prospects and possibilities of really transforming economic relationships around the continent and transforming Africa's economic and commercial relationships with the world. What should happen here uh, in uh, the United States is to begin to look for and frame policies that help bring about Africa's successful economic integration and that means working more effectively with the uh, uh, AU uh, and with the RECs, uh, with ECOWAS, uh, with uh, SADC, uh, with the East African community, helping to strengthen those sub-regional organizations as well as working more effectively uh, with, uh, with, the, with the AU itself. So strengthening those regional ties and connectivity looking for ways to more effectively integrate U.S. Uh, policies and activities with the best things that are happening uh, in Africa, and certainly the African Free Trade uh, Agreement is clearly one of those most uh, important uh, things. The other things that I might uh, quickly uh, mention in terms of, uh, of, of partnerships beyond strengthening the, the regional efforts is uh, looking to strengthen the commercial uh, and business ties with Africa. Uh, those remain uh, areas where we can do uh, a lot more. One of the big things that's happened in the United States over the last two and a half or three years has been the, uh, the creation uh, of the uh, international, U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, which uh, has expanded Uh, the ability uh, of the U.S. government uh, to provide loan, loan guarantees, political risk, and now uh, the possibility of investment in African uh, commercial business and development activities. This is important, too, uh, as a partnership uh, tool. It doesn't mean that we move away from uh, development uh, assistance, clearly, Uh, It is needed uh, in dealing uh, with climate change, dealing with some of the pandemics, health pandemics, but we need to listen uh, a little bit more carefully to Africa's needs, uh, uh, sort out those things where partnership can be developed, but strengthening our capacity to work with regional institutions, RECs, uh, and with the AU, especially on the Africa Trade uh, Initiative, uh, free trade initiative, and also looking for ways to work more effectively uh, on the global issues which tie us all together. And where one party fails, we all fail. If climate change uh, undermines Africa, it undermines America. If global health pandemics undermine Africa, they undermine the rest of the world. We need to understand uh, that we are all uh, in this uh, global community together and effectively, by working together in partnership, we can make more of a, more of a difference.
0: Thank you very much, Ambassador Carson. Um, I also want to start encouraging members of the audience, either online or in person here, to start getting your questions ready um, as we go into uh, the, the next question that I have for you, Mr. Um, Ahuna. So you rightfully noted in your comments, you know, the consequences of the Russia-Ukraine war could transcend economic and social outcomes on the continent. And as you've stated in your recent UNDP rapid assessment report, it says, you know, this crisis, the Russia-Ukraine crisis could present both direct and indirect impacts uh, on the continent. These could include wider implications that could weaken support for democracy and also worsen state society relationships, just to name a few. So given what we know now, can you highlight some specific Interventions that could be implemented or strengthened to help in preventing, mitigating, or rebuilding what UNDP refers to in its report as the peace pillar on on the continent. All right. Well,
2: thanks, okay for that. But let me first say, as uh, the distinguished ambassador, that I really uh, fully uh, concur with your analysis of. Uh, what it takes in terms of regional integration and uh, support that's required for Africa's institutions. I think that's a very big part of it. Um, secondly, I think you know Africa is a very young continent with a lot of young people who have no jobs. <laughs> um, many of them are educated now. Um, Investment in development in the last decades has actually ensured that we also have healthier populations, uh, but you know intelligent educated young people with no jobs it's an invitation to intelligent crime <laughs> or criminality you know so very important to invest in creating jobs for young people um, you know and i think this is a low-hanging fruit because these young people are ready they are ready to play their part we're seeing this in the area of entrepreneurship and innovation we, we published uh, a, a, a magazine in the middle of covid which we called africa innovates it was all young people re- coming up with ideas on how to recover how to actually respond to the issue of uh, COVID through innovations that were hardly supported. You know, there were their own initiatives and they were coming up with all kinds of uh, solutions uh, to these hard core problems. Imagine if we invested in that. So you have a ready, youthful population that wants to be part of the solution. Can the world come in and invest in youth entrepreneurship, in youth innovation that creates jobs for these young people. They want to be job creators. It's not just about creating jobs for them. They actually want to be facilitators. So they're not asking for aid, they're asking for equity. So the business community that you referred to, Ambassador, can come in and look at that opportunity and invest in it. That's one way to actually reduce the consequence, you know, the, the potential. Of crisis or conflict uh, in some of these countries, or the bad guys coming and stealing the minds of the youth. Uh, The second one is, um, I think it's really important to support Africa to grow what it needs and to eat what it grows. You know what it what it produces. Um, Africa's dependence. Up to almost 60%, 60 to 70% of what it needs to sustain life on the outside world, it's going to create conflict because if people can no longer uh, find uh, sustenance, if they can't, um, if they go hungry, they're going hungry and they're not able to meet daily needs. Um, it's it's a recipe for disaster. So how does Africa deal with that? We talked about the Africa continental free trade, trade area, the world could rally behind this because that's one facility that will help Africa boost its productivity, but also increase its share of trade with itself but also with the world. Uh, investment opportunities, the fact that fertilizer right now is not produced on the continent at the level that is needed can change. You know. Uh, grain reserves, for instance, strategic grain reserves could become a, a, a pan-African initiative that is backed by development partners to ensure that when shocks like this come, Africa is ready with the basics that it needs to sustain life. Medicines, uh, the whole pharmaceutical issue was laid bare by COVID, the fact that Africa was not producing vaccines. now there is production that is envisaged on the continent. Imagine if we could have financial support for that, investor support for that, to ensure that Africa is able to locally produce what it needs to protect its people in times of pandemics, not just of the COVID type, but of diseases that are endemic, like malaria and and other things. So so these are, I think, common sense, you know initiatives that could be taken that actually are possible. Uh, energy. I think it's it's important to tackle energy poverty on the continent because it's not sustainable in terms of peace. Cannot be sustained if half the continent continues to have no access to sustainable energy. Not just in terms of lamps in homes, but power access, energy. Access to power that allows small businesses to um, to do business at an affordable cost, rather than incurring so much cost of energy because it's not affordable, it's not available. You know, so you know these are some of the areas that we're working on in UNDP, uh, leveraging technology and digital to get there faster. We think it's also very important. Africa will lead, and in fact is leading the fourth industrial revolution. I think it's important for the world to be aware of this. What has happened, the revolution that's taking place in the area of mobile money, You know, this is a fintech for instance. We have uh, the poor largely banked today, have access to inclusive financing. Because of the new technologies and digital footprint of the continent. So, this is also an area where I think if the world could come together and ensure that it's fully inclusive, that we have, brought, uh, we have um, uh, fi- fiber optics laid in many places so that no one is excluded in the digital revolution, uh, it's, it's going to make a difference on the peace front.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Ahuna. As you all have heard it here today, Africa is leading the revolution. So, on that note, as we see this changing geopolitical landscape, Ambassador Carson, I think it's fair for us to say that the United States needs to rethink and strengthen its strategic relationships with, with Africa. What opportunities for this type of engagement exist? There are opportunities, but, but, but to elaborate even further on what opportunities exist. and How should the United States engage with African policymakers, businesses, civil society, both on the continent and with the US-based diaspora and the African diaspora around the world, engage in them to ensure that this reimagined relationship or this relationship where we talk about strengthening relationship doesn't only speak to U.S. interest, but to the mutual but to mutual benefits that can be gained by both the United States and Africa.
3: Thanks, Ogi. I think that uh, the relationship should be more comprehensive, uh, more consistent, uh, more energetic, uh, and more engaged. Uh, and by comprehensive uh, I would say that it's important not only to have a broad diplomatic uh, relationship uh, with uh, Africa, which is meaningful uh, and intense and done seriously and in partnership, but it's also uh, important uh, for uh, other communities uh, to be engaged uh, as well. I think the business community uh, in the United States needs to take a much more comprehensive and broad-based look uh, at opportunities across uh, the continent uh, and uh, not be uh, as reluctant uh, and fearful uh, and sometimes misinformed uh, about what uh, is happening in Africa and where uh, the opportunities uh, exist. Yes, uh, there are uh, challenges Uh, serious challenges uh, in uh, a number of places around the continent, but there are also serious uh, opportunities uh, as well for business uh, engagement. Uh, More work uh, from – in support of the work of the Corporate Council uh, on Africa, uh, which does a great job. More work uh, by the U.S. Chamber of uh, Commerce, but also uh, it's important for some of the Major uh, sectors uh, and their associations to take a more uh, in-depth look at uh, at the uh, at the at the continent uh, as well. I think uh, there is also uh, a real need uh, to uh, talk with, engage with uh, Africa's uh, diaspora, which is increasingly large and important in the United States, uh, and also to leverage those strong ties and relationships where they can be leveraged to uh, engage uh, more fully in Africa, Uh, not just uh, in uh, humanitarian activities, but also in commercial and business uh, activities, uh, and uh, in uh, activities that are going to uh, strengthen and deepen the the level of, uh, of cooperation. I think equally one needs to look at uh, different kinds of relationships uh, that are more prominent uh, in America's relations with uh, with Europe and with Latin America and Asia, for example, uh, more city to city relationships, more state to state relationships, uh, more ties uh, at uh, the local uh, levels and the regional levels and not simply concentrate uh, at the the national uh, levels. I think these kinds of engagements uh, also are critical to strengthening the fiber of relationships and and connectivity uh, and also uh, looking uh, at uh, various sectors that uh, can tie countries together. Uh, I think of of Nigeria, for example, uh, in its incredible Uh, film uh, and television and communication sector. It needs to be more broadly uh, uh, adopted, integrated into the global community. You mentioned, uh, Madam Secretary, the uh, FinTech uh, and the enormous uh, amount of work that's being done uh, in the uh, digital uh, and technical communication space. And I look at places uh, like Kenya, for example, which has been a pioneer in fintech, a pioneer in mobile money, a pioneer uh, in the kinds of uh, electronic transfers of, uh, of, of, of uh, financial data, uh, and see how they can be more uh, linked in with uh, the digital and technical community, not only in the United States, but globally, uh, to expand those out and make those uh, more meaningful kinds of, uh, of, of relationships. All of these things uh, are are, are important. I'm going to swing back to uh, a a quick comment uh, on the uh, issue of of the African uh, Free uh, Trade Agreement and why it is so important for Africa and the United States. The United States has been uh, one uh, of the strongest supporters of one of the best known free trade areas in the world, and that's the European Union. The success of the uh, European Union has been propelled essentially by the countries 26, 27 that are there, but also by the support of countries like the United States uh, in recognizing their importance in building relationships uh, that are meaningful. Uh, that should be the same kind of activity with respect to, uh, to, to Africa. Because uh, I'll go a, a step further, uh, Madam Secretary, and say that when I look at the importance and the possibilities of this, they're enormous. Africa is the region uh, in the world uh, that uh, trades less with itself than any other region Uh, globally. Uh, Latin America trades more with itself. The Americas, including Mexico and Canada, trade more with itself. The European Union trades more with itself. The Asian nations do the same. But that's not the case uh, with Africa. Africa doesn't uh, uh, trade well with itself. It has uh, too many uh, tariff and non-tariff barriers that uh, prevent the movement. Uh, The strength of Europe's economy uh, is in Europe, Uh, the strength of America's economy is with Mexico and Canada and Canada with the United States and and Mexico. And the same is true of uh, of much of South America as as well. It has to trade uh, more with itself. Uh, to to build its economy, to create jobs, uh, and the outside world can be uh, a partner because your economic growth and the economic growth uh, in Africa strengthens so many elements uh, that are important to the United States. So it's it, it's a it's a critical uh, it's a critical time uh, and a critical juncture for the for the African Trade uh, Agreement. The second thing I'll mention too that is important. Uh, is something that you alluded to, and, and that is the need uh, for uh, Africa to add essential value uh, to the things uh, that it uh, exports uh, abroad. Uh, it needs to be able to do, uh, to, to add uh, value, uh, employment, uh, export earnings uh, to many of the things that are exported Uh, without value. Uh, More needs to be manufactured at at home and it needs to be uh, a part of the effort to expand Africa's uh, regional uh, and uh, global trade because far too much of it still uh, regrettably hinges in uh, oil uh, and gas and and mineral uh, production and not enough uh, in manufactured items uh, that help to expand the prospects for for jobs. Uh, The United States uh, and the business community, both in government uh, and in the private sector, can and should be uh, a part of this this effort. And I think of two or three areas where it's important and people are making a difference, I think the U.S. uh, International Development Finance Corporation is trying to make uh, a real difference, especially in its capacity to put money into uh, projects uh, uh, and be an investor in them. And I think MCC, the Millennial Challenge Corporation, helping to be able to put money uh, into uh, serious infrastructure uh, projects.
0: Thank you very much, Ambassador Carson. Before I open it up for questions, uh, Mr. Hone, did you want to respond or add any additional comments? I saw you nodding and I was wondering if you wanted to add anything there. <laughs> no,
2: I mean, I was only just agreeing, especially um, when Ambassador Carson spoke about um, structural economic transformation and adding value to Africa's raw commodities. I think this is really where the magic will happen, um, That. You know, for decades, you know, Africa still sort of presides over a colonial economy, which basically serves the development of other nations by supplying, be the main supplier of raw materials. And we actually have seen this in the case of fertilizer, actually. It's one area where a lot of the raw materials that constitute the input for fertilizer production are produced in some African countries, and they are all exported out uh, for production elsewhere and then Africa buys back <laughs> you know at a more at a higher cost so it is such a critical point and I think your emphasis on the Africa continental free trade area is, is it's you know um, quite apt because that is also what is going to help uh, with the productivity side you can't trade with what you don't produce, right? what you don't have. So hopefully the market will be a big push for expanding our productivity, but it needs support. Okay.
0: Thank you. So do we have any questions um, in the audience? I'll ask a question. I see Dr. Richard Joseph. Yes, it is. Okay, very
4: good. Okay, thank you uh, very much, uh, Assistant Secretary General, for coming and making these. um. Unfortunately, I've been involved in this business too long. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as I'm looking at that title there, um, you know, 20 years ago, we could have been having a a meeting with that same title, type of, in a time of great... uh, Optimism by the African agenda. So anyway, my I just want to, you know, deal with aspirations and realities. And so, if we take some of the points that you've emphasized, um, first of all, the youthful population and what they represent, uh, but we're also dealing with what is happening in terms of education of that young population. When you mention agricultural productivity, um, and once again, as you know, that has been high on the African agenda for a long time, including fertilizer production and use. Um, if we take power, um, those of us who work on Nigeria know that Nigeria has had continue to produce but has had declining capacity to refine its own uh, crude oil and therefore imports it. So I just, this moment of, you know, of increased challenges, um, you know, how can the response be different from a repetition of aspirations that have not been met. I'll stop there.
0: Thank you so much. Do we have another question? So why don't we tackle that question first? It's a loaded question. (laughs) So in this moment, how can the response be different?
3: Richard, I think your question is is a very serious question and a very significant question at the same time. This is a period of enormous challenge uh, for, for, for Africa uh, because of the COVID crisis, because of climate, because of conflict in Ukraine, and also because of conflict uh, in Africa, in the Horn, for example. But it's also uh, an opportunity uh, for uh, Africa to uh, recognize uh, that uh, it is a real uh, time to 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 move uh, to move forward, uh, and that uh, leadership, uh, democratically elected leadership, uh, good governance uh, uh, are all a part of this uh, of, of this process as well, and that it is absolutely critical. Uh, that uh, leaders uh, in power uh, recognize the challenges that they have before them, uh, the need to do things uh, differently, and to make uh, the kinds of decisions uh, that are going to have uh, some meaningful, uh, meaningful impact on, on, on society. Uh, it, it has to rest with leaders doing uh, the right thing, and also uh, finding uh, good partners regionally and good partners globally uh, to work with. The challenges are are there, uh, but the opportunities exist uh, to do things uh, differently. And I think it starts with good leadership, good governance, uh, and recognition uh, that weak uh, institutions uh, result uh, in weak economies, uh, bad governance, Uh, and potential conflict.
2: You know, Richard, I've been also in this business for a long time, and uh, to some extent, I I share uh, some of uh, your uh, words there. Um, But you know, having been in it for a long time has also led me to a place where now I, I, I want to invest in the opportunity. And I think if only half of us invested in what's going right, we will get much more mileage. Because the orientation, the normal for Africa, is to look at it from a lens of the negative, of the weakness, of the uh, uh, challenges. And this is, many PhDs have been written on. The impossibility of Africa, the problem of Africa. So, we are now in a position where we're saying we've actually witnessed enough good governance, we've witnessed enough strength and resilience in the people and systems of Africa to invest in. And if we just did that, you know, if we just recognized that Zambia as a country, people, government, systems, Went to the polls, and in some cases, we actually have better governance than the rest of the world in some of these contexts. But no one is investing in that. If we just agree that a country like Botswana has done everything right by its resources and its and its uh, uh, people, uh, most things right that they know, nobody gets it 100% right. But that we can invest in that track record, and not allow it to be reversed but rather continue on on the path of strength. If we just invested in political transitions that we see opportunities created where long-serving leaders step down, die, or are taken out, and a country has an opportunity to reset its clock. Where are we? when a country like Chad happens? Where are we when something like what we saw in Burkina Faso post Campaore happens? It was a youth movement that took out a long-serving, maybe not so good governance system and created an opportunity for a new start for the country, where were we? Where were we there in an intentional, ready way to accompany that transition? That is, in most cases, not so easy. It's quite complex. South Sudan, Zimbabwe, you know, and you can continue to count. So my, from where I sit right now, I think that there is enough to give us confidence that we can invest in what's going right on the continent, and the rest will follow. The more we can expand the space of the good, (laughs) the more we can make the negative and the challenges the minority. They will always be there, but what we need to do is make that the exception, right? And I want to make that the exception by investing in that which is just now considered marginal. Uh, there is progress on the continent, let's invest on in the progress, there's a promise in the youth, let's invest in the youth.
0: Thank you very much Madam Secretary. And we got two questions online, so I'll go ahead and, and read through the first question and this is addressed to both of you. So how do you think international trade can be reformed? Because as the, world tra- as the WTO rules are now, it seems that only developed countries can benefit from, from it, from the rules of the WTO. So, we- so this question is addressed to both of you. How do you think international trade can be reformed?
3: Well, let me, let me just say that uh, we've discussed uh, earlier where some of the shortcomings and pitfalls are. Uh, Africa needs, first of all, uh, to trade more uh, with uh, its neighboring countries. It needs to bring down both tariff and non-tariff barriers that uh, inhibit uh, trade. They need to uh, improve in- infrastructure regionally in between uh, and among uh, regions uh, and, 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 and countries. Uh, they need to uh, look for larger uh, regional uh, markets, and they need to work on uh, improving uh, key infrastructure and access to uh, electricity and water, uh, which are the drivers behind uh, much of what's uh, going on. Um, Africa also needs, and we only touched a little bit on, 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 on agriculture uh, here, but uh, Africa needs to uh, substantially uh, improve uh, its local and regional uh, agriculture. There's really no need uh, in many instances for Africa to uh, be importing large amounts of food, uh, whether uh, it's grains and wheat or whether it's rice uh, and other, uh, other commodities. And so there's a, a need to, to, to do some of these structural things uh, to uh, improve the situation, I'm again recalling that you know only you know six or seven percent uh, of uh, all farmland uh, in, in Africa is based on irrigation. There's very low uh, rates of irrigation across the uh, across the continent. Moving away from rain-fed agriculture uh, also helps to uh, increase uh, food production. Uh, increases rural and farm livelihoods uh, increases the prospects of, of, of trading across borders between countries. So all of these things are, 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 are there, but it's, it's a, the regional framework. And then it's the, the whole issue of, 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 of value added, adding uh, value uh, to, uh, to, to products and, and manufacturing much, much more uh, i think that you know the, the w t o real rules do uh, increase, do cause some uh impediment but they aren't the they, they aren't the primary uh causes uh for uh the lack of, of economic uh growth and the lack of uh economic trade regionally and internationally uh, because again as i pointed out i think that you know the the level of inter africa trade is the, is the lowest of any other region, and although you know, there's uh, Africa exports a lot of minerals and, and oil and other products, you know, its contribution to global trade is actually pretty low, uh, uh, and so uh, adding value to uh, both agricultural products to manufactured products, uh, there's a capacity. I think the, the, the solution shouldn't be looked at as uh, a WTO uh, issue. It should be looked at uh, more systemically uh, and internally. Uh, WTO rules, rules shouldn't be uh, the, the, uh, the, the reason that people say that, uh, that uh, trade and economic development are, are not there. It, it becomes an easy excuse. I think one needs to go beyond that. One needs to go beyond uh, the the WTO uh, reasons for the lack of trade. You,
0: Madam Secretary.
2: I think that I would agree with. I think it's you know it's 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 the WTO, but it's also beyond the WTO. I think that reform is needed, and um, and it it requires political will. I think that the world knows what to do. You know, it's not we're not here going to make prescriptions. I think you know that this has been studied extensively, and we know. Where the fault lines are. Uh, we, we know exactly where the inequalities and the, uh, and the economic injustice reside within the trade uh, system, the international trade system. We lack the political will to push for change in those areas. And I'll just give you one example. Master, you were talking about um, adding value uh, to products. So, you know, you take a country like Cote d'Ivoire, which produces cocoa. Um, it, it wants to produce chocolate, not just export cocoa beans, right? And it has started. But you know, in order to be able to export its chocolate to other countries, the the the, the tariff that will be slapped on the finished product, it's almost impossible to make any profit from it. Uh, and that's intentional, because the trading partners want the cocoa beans. They don't want the chocolate. Uh, Because the cocoa is gonna help create their own industry and their own jobs. But guess what? You know, if the world doesn't wake up to the fact that Cote d'Ivoire needs to have those manufacturing firms and create jobs for its young population, they should not be surprised when those young people go after the jobs wherever they are created. Because now migration becomes an issue, right? Because the jobs are not where people live and they're you know, their ambitions are the ambitions of these young people, wherever they sit in Africa, becoming a lot bigger than the opportunities they have at home. So we need to create those opportunities at home. And one way to do it is not to have the high tariff uh, uh, standards for finished products, which then, you know, removes the incentive for countries to add value. Uh, to their product, so that you know, that's, whether that's a WTO issue or not uh, is another matter. But that's a reality
0: you know, when we get sort of practical on this. Thank you so much. And a uh, second question we have here is on the concern, and I think Madam Secretary this is d- uh, directed to you, the Ambassador Carson, you can uh, chime in too mm-hmm. as well. So on the concern of fragility, as you mentioned in your remarks. This question here was wasn't the term fragility initiated by the G7 countries and conflict and conflict affected states and isn't the GFA which is a new global the global fragility act isn't it supportive of the G7 member goals so I think the, the question here as it's written, it's just the concern about the term fragility and the way the term is being used. The question here is phrased as, wasn't that a term that was developed in collaboration between the G7 countries and conflict-affected countries?
2: I don't, I don't have a problem with the term fragility being coined and used, I just have a problem with it being always associated with Africa. If, you know. Africa is synonymous to fragility, that's what I'm saying. There is a, a certain hijacking of the development space where you give agency to the people, where they are in charge of their own uh, development agenda, and where they're seeking uh, to be seen as you know, people with a dream and people who want to have prosperity, and yet they keep getting boxed into a fragility kind of space. Where And it's a different mindset you know that's what we need to tackle. when you are defined in in the fragility terms, it means actually you're not ready for prosperity. you know it means that the set of goals and initiatives that are being applied uh, to you are sort of marginal to what you need in terms of investments in the drivers of development and prosperity, right? So it's a mindset issue, and I'm sure that those who are using the term may not mean it in that way, but that's the impression that is created. And we can have a debate about this. You know, we can talk, it doesn't mean that there aren't countries and systems that are fragile. It just means that does Africa become again the poster child for all things fragility? And I think that it's a negative trend because on the contrary, we have a continent despite all the odds that is trying to rise and do better for its people. I think the world needs to see this Africa rather than just the fragile Africa. It does not mean we shouldn't invest in is sort of overcoming fragility where it exists, and there are many parts of the world where that is. I think what what I'm up against is the identity of Africa and the whole conversation around Africa being only and mostly about the fragility. Because we see other dynamics that are happening on the continent, um, and, and we need to invest in those dynamics, and we should not offset uh, the, the, the mind or the track uh, by just you know, sort of bringing everything back to a box of crisis. You know, the crisis, the predominance of the crisis mentality is hurtful to Africa's development. And you see even in the way resources are channeled, the way the energy is channeled, yes of course you have to deal with crisis, but if you just reduce a continent to a crisis situation
0: it will not move forward thank you very much madam secretary ambassador Carson did you want to add any points on that
3: no, not really I think there is a debate about whether the word fragility is is used uh, too broadly and sometimes too too loosely and instead of uh, uh, identifying uh, one country you begin to identify a region a continent and so you it has to be looked at, uh, at, at carefully. There's no doubt that there are degrees of fragility uh, in, uh, in Africa, but there is fragility as well uh, in other parts of the, of the world. There's fragility in, uh, in, in, in Central America and uh, in, in parts of Latin America, if you're looking at uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela and, uh, and places, uh, places like that. And, uh, uh, and there's also fragility in, uh, in, in parts of Asia as, as, uh, as well. Uh, but one should be very careful about assigning the word uh, to uh, one region, uh, one group of people, uh, and uh, be uh, careful about how it's, uh, how it's defined and used. So.
0: Thank you, Ambassador Carson. And we're almost coming to the end of our conversation today. Uh, but Madam Secretary, I'd like to invite you to give a few uh, closing thoughts or remarks on this.
2: Mm. Thank you, Oge. Okay. I think um, as we look at the impact of this war in Ukraine and uh, on the continent and in the world, and as we look at recovery from the impact of COVID uh, pandemic, I think it's a a strong message, a wake-up call uh, to Africa, and this is really for Africa and Africans, that um, it is time. I mean, Richard was asking the question, why are we still here? It is really time for, for Africa to own its own development space and agenda. I think part of what makes Africa slower in its journey to develop It's the, um, I would say, uh, this is lack of ownership actually, and and leadership of that agenda. And the the space that is created for many detractors, I mean, there, there are so many multiple agendas on the continent and everyone comes with their own piece of it and Africa has to sort of run after it um, and I think it's time to consolidate on the continent what is right for Africa's development. And for that agenda to be owned by the people, not just the governments, by the people of the continent. This is really important. And that they are in the driver's seat in terms of determining whether. You know what the future holds and where the con- continent goes. I think there needs to be a reduction in dependency for the things that African needs to sustain life. Um, you know, basic things. That has that's another wake-up call. Is really to begin to fashion those policies that allow the continent to have greater independence, greater autonomy in its. Uh, um, in the commodities and and productivity that it needs to uh, stay to absorb these shocks. It's it's important to shock-proof the development pathways, uh, whether we're talking about climate shocks or uh, conflict shocks uh, or pandemic shocks. And I think um, it's important for Africa to invest in integration, regional integration. The continent, because of the way it is divided uh, in the sort of colonial uh, construct, cannot survive without being regionally integrated and without the sort of one Africa market construct. And so anyone who wants to accompany Africa's development successfully Needs to invest in all of this, including investing in Africa's youth. For me, that's where the hope lies. Uh, um, We cannot continue to bypass this dynamic young population in our development practice. We need to put them at the center. They need to become the spine of our development uh, assistance and practice. And if we did that, I think that the health of this continent will be secured. And finally, I think we go back to where we started, which is that what is good for Africa is good for the world. This continent cannot be separated from you know, sort of the global um, aspirations to attain uh, uh, higher levels of civilization. It is part and parcel of that journey and therefore needs to be treated with equal respect and uh, economic justice. Thank
0: you very much, Madam Secretary. Ambassador Carson, do you want to add anything?
3: No, I think it's been a a great uh, conversation. I think it's important to recognize that there are numerous challenges uh, as a result of the things that have occurred over the last uh, couple of years and decade. climate change, COVID conflict in Africa, conflict in Ukraine, but there are uh, serious uh, uh, opportunities that should be taken uh, 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 by African leaders and by African uh, countries. Um, I'll use your words, uh, Madam Secretary, um, uh, the current uh, global environment uh, is a wake-up call uh, for Africa uh, to do uh, something important uh, about uh, uh, agriculture, about trade, uh, about uh, regional uh, integration, uh, about urbanization. Uh, uh, it's a wake-up call for uh, for greater progress. Uh, and that progress uh, is really uh, desired uh, by African citizens as reflected Uh, in a lot of the uh, polling data that's uh, done uh, around Africa by such groups as as Afrobarometer, the desire for uh, people to uh, have more democratic governance, uh, uh, to be uh, a part of more inclusive societies, uh, to realize greater economic uh, growth uh, opportunity, to have uh, better health conditions, and even to support regional integration. are are all out there. Um, uh, It's important for, uh, I think, Africa's leaders uh, to uh, seize the opportunities that are out there, uh, develop the uh, strong partnerships globally uh, that are are available uh, to surge and move uh, move ahead. Uh, It's a a period of enormous challenge, uh, but also significant opportunity.
0: Thank you very much ambassador Carson thank You madam secretary thank you for a very engaging conversation today for those who are still online I encourage us to continue this conversation um, using the hashtag Africa's uh, economic future um, please join me in giving a warm thank you round of applause to our panelists today and as we I think in summary it's been said there are challenges but there are a lot of opportunities and there are opportunities to invest in what is going right. I also want to invite everyone to join us outside uh, as we tour the Imagine uh, live exhibit. So thank you so much everyone. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.